0: You're listening to Booth One.
1: That's a very Booth One after dark approach.
0: Okay, (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Well, this is Gary Zabinski, and you've come to the right place for the best in the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. My loyal co-host Frank is on an extended European vacation visiting the Crown Heads, I think. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if he's seeing all the Crown Heads or not. We'll get to hear all about his foreign adventures and possible intrigues when he returns in an episode or two. But for today... My guest is Richard Shavzin, a friend and colleague from What would you say, Richard, about a million years ago? Oh,
0: approximately that,
1: yes. (laughs) Maybe half a million. We'll get to that in a minute. Richard is an award-winning director, actor, producer, and litigation consultant. More about that as well in a few moments. He draws on a strong theater background to train professionals in presentation skills. He consults for law firms across the U.S. and the Northwestern University Law School. Am I getting all this right?
0: Yes, actually. Fantastic.
1: Uh, His acting career includes uh, movies, television, radio, commercials across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, You've been a freelance director since, oh, I guess the late 80s, mid to late 80s?
0: Early 90s.
1: And uh, you were also artistic director at a local theater company called Straw Dog for a number of years
0: uh i was from uh, 93 to uh, 98
1: well that must have been right about when they started in business uh,
0: five years in the founding artistic director was there for five years uh, i was 93 to 98
1: you also have received two joseph jefferson awards you know you can't appear on this program unless you've had at least one jefferson award
0: well, in that so, case, congratulations. Then I'm delighted that it worked out that way.
1: Let's talk about this uh, relationship that you and I have had for many, many years. Yes. You and I worked together on a project called Club Kokomo. Yes, we did. By our friend Paul Stanley, who produced, wrote, and well, I guess produced and wrote the thing you yes. directed. I was your stage manager. Yes, you what, what do you recall about that experience in that piece most?
0: What I recall most, and, and and most fondly, was the collaboration between this amazing group of people that ended up being involved on a variety of levels and in and, and different areas. All of the the actors, you as a amazing stage manager, our design team.
1: Yeah, the design team was was, was cool.
0: Just great. And maybe my, my most favorite thing, you know, right off the top was what was done with that space at Northlight that before that I didn't know you could do. Uh,
1: yeah, let's tell the folks a little <clears> a bit about <throat> this show. So it takes place in a nightclub called yes. Club Kokomo, hence the title, Indeed. and it involves the misadventures or adventures or antics of what was it six characters seven characters
0: yes some seven of whom characters.
1: some of whom know each other some of whom have dated each other in the past and paul stanley's concept was that you would go to this club and Music that played that he was always very fond of. This is music from the 60s, pretty much. Would you say rock music from the 60s, maybe uh, early 70s?
0: Yeah, spanned those two eras. Yeah, 60s, 70s.
1: Flock of Seagulls, for instance, things like that. The conceit was that the audience would sit at these tables like in a club right and our actors would enter sort of unbeknownst to the crowd and they would also sit at tables but they were mic'd, and we had lighting of course on their on their tables and then dialogue would ensue between these actors Indeed, a- and the audience was supposed to gradually get to understand that wait something's going on over at that table that i didn't know about and there was the concept well that was that was
0: half, well, most of the content. <laughs> what was the other However, half? Instead of having theater seating and a stage, the entire thing was flat and a nightclub and there were co- cocktail tables everywhere and the action happened in and amongst the audience yeah. at, you know, the table next door to you. Or right.
1: Whatever. We essentially did it in a ballroom.
0: Right. And there were bars. There were actual working bars and people could get up during the show and go get a drink and some of the action happened at the bars and we'd follow the actors with follow spots and such. But... After every scene, if you recall, there was a five-person a cappella group, a really amazing, amazingly talented a cappella group that would sing either entire songs or snippets from songs from that era that commented on the scene we had just seen.
1: Yeah. Uh, I would forgotten about that that this Greek chorus of a cappella singers would comment on the on the scene that we
0: just sort of saw. Yes. And they yeah. were they were quite good. Oh they were fabulous. It added an element that uh, I have not really experienced before or since. It was the strangest show
1: I've ever, ever been involved in. You can't even conceive of how it really played itself out unless you were there.
0: Don't forget, some of the most fun elements were that Paul, the the writer and producer, had quite a career in music before this and had helped establish, resurrect in some cases, the careers of some fairly well-known people. So, for example, at the Closing Night Party, which was New Year's Eve of 2000, as a matter of fact. Do you remember who played the Closing Night Party?
1: Paul Revere and the Raiders? No, no, no. Or who that was
0: We'll get to that in a second. No, it was the Turtles. It was Flo and Eddie. Ah, uh, Flo and Eddie, yes. Flo and Eddie played, played Closing Night as a favorite of Paul. The Paul Revere and the Raiders th- uh, thing you're thinking about is Mark Lindsay, who Mark was Lindsay. the lead vocalist, and then went on to a, a very good solo career. He owed Paul a few favors. Nice, nice guy. And he came in and sat and watched the show in a special box every night. And then at intermission, he did a 15-minute set backed up by the a cappella group from the show. Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) So he would do kicks and Stepping Stone, Arizona, you know, some of his solo hits as well. And the whole thing was just amazingly surreal.
1: It was bizarre. Again, the the strangest show I've ever, ever been involved (laughs) with. How did this not make it to Broadway?
0: (laughs) Boy, if I knew then what I know now. Speaking of then,
1: I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about where you grew up. Mm. And how you first came to be interested in a life in the theater, because you've pretty much spent your entire adult career in the theater world in some way or another, either as a director, an actor, Mm -hmm. a a teacher, a uh, litigation consultant, which I definitely want to talk to you about. Tell us where you're from and and how you got, well, how you got to Booth One today, (laughs) besides
0: driving. Right. I, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin high school and started college there. In those days, and we're talking uh, the mid-70s, generally the goal was to get out and go to college in Madison, which I couldn't afford to do immediately. So I uh, spent a couple years in college working full-time and going to school in Milwaukee and still living at home, and then uh, went to Madison.
1: uh, University of Wisconsin. University
0: (laughs) And actually, I was going to save the world through clinical psychology.
1: You were a double major or something of theater and psychology?
0: Indeed. But I started with psychology in Milwaukee, and I went to Madison. And then my girlfriend at the time suggested a class. I needed one three-credit class to fill out my schedule, right? And I had a lot of heavier classes, and I wanted something light. And she said, yay, why don't you try first semester acting? I took it a, a couple of summers ago. I had a great time. And I thought, well, hey, I did some of that in high school. That sounds like fun. Yeah. And I just never looked back. Just totally, totally gave over, got the bug, blah blah.
1: What was your first show? Do you remember what show you were? In?
0: I do, and I had to cut my hair because I was at this was the seventies. I was a you know typical hippie, hair down to you know several inches past my shoulders. Wow. And I got cast in um, a View from the Bridge which remains one of my favorite plays, as the, as the older lawyer, uh, as Mr. Alfieri, mm-hmm. it also led to uh, me getting contact lenses because, and this is incredibly bizarre, it was such a tiny theater. It was a, a, a small classroom theater on the fourth floor of the theater building in Madison. So the way that the dir- director had done it was the lawyer's office was a corner of the stage, and I was always there. And he does some direct address narration, and then the, the main, main character, Eddie Carbone, comes in and out of his office. So I was always in his office, and then the lights would go down. And then when we were going to do a scene, lights would come up. And the director did not want me wearing glasses. So what I was doing when I, during most of the play when I had nothing to do was I had these law books, and I would open them, and I would stare at them. And I couldn't see a thing, because I'm very nearsighted. <laughs> and it was sort of this fuzzy... Black ink on parchmenty book paper literally would put me to sleep, would make me drowsy. I never fall, fell asleep in front of an audience, but I did get sort of lulled to sleep during um, dress, I think, <laughs> finally, <laughs> during tech or dress. So I, uh, I said, yeah, this isn't going to work. I need to go get contact lenses ah. and, and did almost instantly.
1: I think that's a fair reason to get contact lenses so you don't fall asleep on stage. On stage. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's yeah.
0: it. Word to the that's wise. That's
1: acting 101 yeah. right there. You work training litigators and consulting gigs for law firms. Do you still work for Speaking Legally?
0: Yes. Uh, Speaking Legally is one of the two entities. That's actually a partnership I have with another actor, director, uh, Kevin Tice.
1: Uh, Kevin Tice has been mm-hmm. a guest on this show. Well,
0: see, there you go. And everything we comes full have circle. only the best. And we have a, uh, another partner that through sheer coincidence we both knew, who's an attorney. And we banded together. And that's actually for uh, coaching litigators on performance skills, The other entity is called Chicago Litigation Consultants, and on that one is uh, where I bring actors into law firms, and in one case, a law school, and we portray either clients or witnesses or whatever uh, for purposes of training younger lawyers in various skills, uh, deposition, trial practice.
1: But Tell me how that would work. Let's say I'm a up-and-coming litigator, Mm. and I want to improve my courtroom presence and presentation. Is that sort of where that starts?
0: The first entity, the speaking legally part, which is the the actual presentation skills, yes. That can happen a bunch of different ways. It can happen, uh, we've had firms hire us to go in and work with anywhere between half a dozen and two dozen of their associates, and sometimes partners on those kinds of skills. We can do it individually. You know, Individual litigators call us. And sometimes if they're inexperienced, sometimes if they haven't been in court in years. We've had that come up. And they need to sort of refresh those skills. The other side of it is, for example, what I just got back from doing. One of my clients had some training for the last two days in New York. Actors will come in and play witnesses in a very structured exercise to train them, say, how to take better depositions. Uh So the actors will each play four different characters. You do a round robin in different rooms, and the lawyers sort of hone their skills in how to ask better questions, what kind of questions you ask when. Uh, In this particular case, although this doesn't happen all the time, but I think this is the way that they really get best value. One of those rooms, there's a camera, and the young lawyer gets recorded doing this session. And then when they're done getting the critique from the law faculty on the actual law part, that video is dumped onto a flash drive. And they bring it into a room next door where I sit. And we go over the actual communications uh, and, and presentation skills. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's, it's verbal. Sometimes it's uh, word choice. It can be all over the map. Sure. Depending on what you know, what that particular sure. person needs. How did you fall into this? It w- couldn't have been more accidental. I first moved to Chicago in 81 uh, from Madison, and at the time, almost all auditions and everything, and those kinds of opportunities were in the reader, right? That was the... That was the the uh,
1: Chicago Reader exactly. local publication here.
0: There was no industry rag at the time, so it was before performing existed, for example. And that's, that's where it was. And anyway, there were, there were ads in there for actors to play witnesses for a mock trial for a summer thing, you know, a couple of weeks here, there, whatever. And I did that for a while. And then they got tired of paying the money that we were getting, which was not no lordly sum. Yeah, I wouldn't Just, think so. Yeah, But they didn't even want to pay that. And so they reduced the pay. And then most of the professionals who were doing it, we all left and a few people, from what I understand, stayed, and then they stopped paying it all, and everybody else quit. And I, I have no idea what happened to that. But that was sort of my first taste of it. And then a few years later, another girlfriend of mine was doing this exact same gig in the very, very early days for Northwestern Law School. And in those days, the rule was that you had this gig every year. It was like a three-day gig. You had it every year until you couldn't do it. And if you couldn't do it one year, somebody else got it, and it was theirs to, uh, until they couldn't do it. Maybe not the best personnel system ever <laughs> <Maybe not>. created. <laughs> I was directing at that point. I had become the artistic director of Strahdog at that point. I was running a large set of auditions, so I had a reputation of a guy who knew most actors in town. Sure. So they asked me to start hiring the actors for that, and that's really how it, uh, it all started.
1: Now you've been doing this a long time, though. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in a minute, but let me ask you this question: Are you an outdoors person? You don't strike me as an outdoorsy type.
0: I'm a limited outdoors person. Uh, uh, I'm not an athlete. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Let's put it that way. Have uh, you Have you heard of glamping? You know, it's ringing a bell, but I can't. I, I glamping, don't think I could define it.
1: Glamping is glamorous camping. Oh. Tents, sleeping under the stars, ghost stories, and in this case, gold leaf s'mores, cocktails uh, of <laughs> champagne, two massive bathrooms with showers. You know, you know, camping. Well, sure. Well, at least that's how the Gwen, which is a hotel here in Chicago, at least that's how the Gwen does camping with their urban glamping experience. It's a tent on a fancy outdoor terrace, and yes, you may book it for you and your lovely date now through September 30th, and it's this beautiful pavilion of a tent set on top of a rooftop perched on the expansive uh, 16th floor of Gwen Lux Suite Terrace, complete with plush lounge furniture. Furniture and a gas fireplace. (laughs) The two of you will be staying in a 16 foot tent featuring, get this, mango wood side tables.
0: I can no longer live without one.
1: I'm ordering those for you oh, as a as a thank you gift for appearing on Booth One. I'm going to send them to your house. That's
0: so sweet. There's
1: also hand-knotted macrame seat cushions and a braided Indian jute rug at the base of the queen-size bed until you sneak back into the attached two-bedroom suite in the middle of the night, that is. This is on Rush Street, 521 North Rush Street, uh, right in the heart of the River North, I guess is what they call it here,
0: yeah, Gold Coast right. River
1: River North. Take a guess as to what a night in this would be, just randomly.
0: Now, you did say the s'mores were gold leaf. Y- yes, and you so, can also
1: ask up to six friends to go in on it with you.
0: Oh, I'm going to be a little conservative. I'll go 750
1: $750? Yes. I think you'd have to pay 750 just to go camping these days. $5,500 per night. Wow. Dead air, dead air. Yeah. (laughs) I've never shocked a guest quite that much. $5,500 and you can go glamping at the Gwen here in Chicago on Rush Street.
0: I'm going to keep that in mind. Run, don't walk, Richard. Yeah, right. (laughs) Let's
1: get back to your litigation training. Can anybody learn how to be better at their presentational skills and their, well, I guess, lawyering skills. And have you ever encountered an attorney who's absolutely just hopeless at it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) In one respect, people sort of self-select on their way into the process, Uh, by which I mean when you're in law school or shortly thereafter, you make a decision if you are going to be a litigator or a transactional lawyer. And most transactional lawyers really don't see the inside of a courtroom.
1: Tax uh, law, uh, things yeah, like across that. Across the mm-hmm.
0: board. So litigators are a fairly small subset of lawyers in general. Then on top of that, actual trial lawyers are even a smaller subset of litigators. Now, these skills aren't exclusive to litigators. Even, even if somebody doesn't go to you know, court and deal with uh, either a jury trial or a bench trial, either way, it's still presentational... But even if they don't do that, sometimes we've had oh, we've had firms contact us who are, for example, uh, what they call wealth management, uh, estate planning, things like that. Even those kinds of lawyers, they need to go pitch business.
1: I see. In, in front of a
0: client. Exactly. And so yeah. we've been called in to improve those kinds of communication skills as so well. So do you
1: hire actors to, say, play the family members and to no, ask no, no, pertinent no. We don't. questions? Because I would love to do that.
0: <laughs> no, we don't go to that extent. We, well, I should say we haven't had to. No, the, the actors are strictly for playing witnesses and, and or clients for that other kind of training. This is more... The way I describe it to people in theater is it's monologue coaching for civilians because it's the same sets of skills, right? Uh, it's, it does how you're saying something match what you're saying. Does form match content? Sure. Are you communicating what you think you're communicating? Because a lot of people, they'll do something, and I'll ask, uh, okay, so did you mean to be X, right? Did you mean to have a little hostility? Did you mean to but whatever it is? Frequently, they have no idea how they're coming across. They're, that's
1: where your theater training as mostly a director comes in because you're reading what the actor is doing on stage and they could be doing things that are reading in a way that they have no idea, as absolutely. you say with uh, these attorneys, sure, right? Absolutely. Have you ever run into anybody who is just absolutely... Oh, right.
0: Uh, <laughs> a very difficult one. Not impossible. Not impossible but probably the most challenging on the continuum that you're asking about. One of my client firms had a uh, a tax lawyer who wanted to litigate. Youngish guy, early 30s, and wanted to do that. And he was an immigrant with a very, very strong accent. So as is often the case in these kinds of situations, and and this is also true with, with young folks as well, you you cut your teeth on pro bono cases that the, the firm is taking on or the individual lawyers are taking on. And every lawyer has an ethical obligation to have a certain amount of pro bono work, it's just per year. So the firm asked me to come in and work with him so he could be understood because this was a fairly high he was it was going before the uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal court of appeals that's uh, headquartered in Chicago. So you were sort of
1: almost an elocution expert at that point.
0: Yes. It was throwing, I should say, it was throwing that on top of everything else. I see. We rehearsed a whole lot, and we worked on those kinds of skills, and then uh, he asked a couple of his colleagues from the firm to pretend to be the three-judge panel, and we we had a mock run... And one day we went to the Seventh Circuit to observe so he would know what to expect. Sure, You know, literally how it looks, where you stand, where they're sitting, where your opponent is, so you could just get a flavor of it all. That was challenging. I I wasn't allowed to be in when he actually had to make the argument. I was told he did well. That was
1: about your most challenging client. Yes. Up to that point. Did he tip you? (laughs) Was he he appropriately appreciative of your assistance?
0: Uh, Very much so. I got a a very, very uh, sweet note from him after he made uh, his argument in the Seventh Circuit. What do you
1: think of the presentation skills of Stormy Daniels' lawyer, Michael Avenatti?
0: He's pretty good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think he is pretty good, too.
0: He is ready for prime time.
1: He's certainly got me to be a fan, for sure. Yeah.
0: He has a very good gift of gab. Uh, his confidence level is just fine. And personally, I want to see the Avenatti-Cohen cage match is what I'm looking for. How about a, a, a forum co-hosted by Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity? You know? <laughs> yeah, that would be excellent. Yeah. Rachel, you listening? Because I think that would be six kinds of awesome.
1: no. <laughs> That would be fantastic. I need to touch back on our last episode. Uh, do you know uh, actress Jennifer Engstrom? Of course. Uh, sure. Of course sure. you do. Well, she was our guest last time on the program. And uh, we mentioned that we were going uh, to a, a Red Orchid Theater's uh, spring fundraiser at the American Writers Museum shortly after we had taped that episode. And I just wanted to do a follow-up. Uh, we did go. It was a lovely event. Uh, the American Writers Museum is on the second floor of an office building on on Michigan Avenue. And it is a compilation of accomplishments by American writers. It's a whole museum devoted to them, dedicated to their writings. There's Things you can read, there's histories and biographies that you can look at. It was it was really fun to be in that space. That's great. But we also saw Jennifer do some excerpts from her one-woman show, Excuse My Dust, a Dorothy Parker portfolio. Oh,
0: love Dorothy Parker.
1: So she plays Dorothy Parker, and uh, she does it with just a change of hats and a mink stole. She moves about the room between several different locations, and she does these pieces that Dorothy Parker wrote. They were hilarious, and she was so brilliant at it. We'd seen her in a number of things and enjoyed her throughout the years, uh, especially uh, as Blanche and Streetcar Named Desire a couple of seasons ago. But this was something totally unexpected and totally different. She did one called The Garter, where... She's playing the fact that she's all dolled up except her garter breaks, and now she has to cross her legs in a certain way, and she's commenting on how people are looking at her in the room. <laughs> Hilarious. Just great stuff. So I wanted to give a big shout-out to the Red Orchid Theater for producing a wonderful fundraiser, and I hope that they made tons and tons of money. Richard, you're a official Tony voter, are you not? I am. I think there's only like 840 (laughs) some odd
0: Tony voters, which
1: is not very many when you think about it.
0: Interesting. Broadway producers would characterize that as too many.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Tony Awards are tomorrow, June 10th on CBS. Yes, You've seen all of the nominees, I take it.
0: I have seen all of the nominees except for two. The rule in voting is is that in order to vote in any given category, you have to see all the shows in that, that are nominated in that category. This year, I didn't, just for timing, I didn't get a chance to see. John Leguizamo did a one man show called Latin History for Morons, and it was nominated for Best Play, mm-hmm. so I wasn't mm-hmm. allowed to vote in that category. And the other one I didn't see was actually Steve Martin's script, Meteor Shower, that was starring Amy Schumer, Amy Schumer. and Laura Bernanti, and I actually had tickets for that. And I got a uh, uh, an email that morning. Both Amy Schumer and Laura Benanti were sick, and they had the same understudy, so they canceled. Whoops. Yes, they canceled the performance.
1: Well, without putting you mm. on the spot, and I don't want you to tell me who you voted for, mm. but I would like to get your take on maybe six categories. We're not going to do the whole thing. I read an article where they surveyed about 100 official Tony voters, and they got their opinion about what they were going to vote for. So I'd like your opinion on what you think is going to win. Maybe not what you voted for, but what you think is going to win.
0: Well, I'll tell you, now that the voting is over, I can talk about it. Fantastic. Before, before I couldn't, but now I can.
1: Let's go with Best Musical, Bands Visit, Frozen, Mean Girls, and SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical. What's going to win here?
0: Bands Visit. 80, no, there'll 80, be nothing in second place.
1: 80% of the surveyed Tony voters thought Ben's Visit would win. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about best play. The Children, Farinelli and the King, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Junk, and the aforementioned Latin History for Morons.
0: Well, I tell you what will win yeah. is Harry Potter, 100%.
1: Did you see both parts of that? I
0: did. It was spectacular stagecraft. As I remarked to um, a colleague of mine, and her husband were sitting uh, next to us, and I, I remarked in between the the we were leaving after part one, before part two, it was like I'm sort of terrified of thinking about the community theater version in 30 years. <laughs> oh dear! That somebody's yes. going to do. It's it's one of those things that's absolutely spectacular, but is going to be so hard to recreate.
1: Mm. Two-thirds of those surveyed thought Harry Potter and the Cursed Child was the best play of the year. Let's go with Best Revival of a Musical. There was only three, Carousel, My Fair Lady, and Once on this Island. All three wonderful shows.
0: Yes. It's going to be a toss-up between Carousel and My Fair Lady.
1: I made some notes on my sheet here. Can you read what I wrote there?
0: Toss-up. Yes. there you
1: go. I wrote toss-up. I think it's pretty even between all three. Your uh, vote?
0: I think it's even between Carousel and My Fair Lady. One's in this island I don't think is really in the running. Both my vote and who I think is going to squeak by is My Fair Lady. Mm. The reason that I went with My Fair Lady is that it was reinterpreted probably not as much as the hype would have you believe, but enough, I think, that it made a difference. First of all, Lauren Ambrose was a revelation. I had known her from being the daughter and Six Feet Under. Sure. No one knew she could sing until recently, but she was marvelous in this. The Higgins was also f- just fantastic. Uh, Harry, Haddon, Payton. What made the difference was that they were more equals in this telling and closer in age, mm. which sort of reduced the creepy mm. factor.
1: Mm. It's still one of my all-time favorite shows. So that's your your pick, My Fair Lady. Yes. Let's go with revival of a play. This is not such a great category. Angels in America, Lobby Hero, Three Tall Women, The Iceman Cometh, and Travesties.
0: Interesting. Why would you say it was not such a great category?
1: I don't think uh, any of them are as interesting as Angels in America.
0: I think the point of best revival is not necessarily just the script at this point, mm. but production as well. And that's true even for the best play category. It was actually an incredibly strong year. Every single one of those productions was top-notch, and I really enjoyed all of them. Angels is going to win. All right, I'll mark that down. It was just a mind-blowing experience, revival, brilliantly directed, brilliantly acted, just a joy to behold, and seven and a half hours? Okay, I don't care.
1: Let's talk about some performances. Leading actor in a play, and we'll just do a few of these. Leading actor in a play, Andrew Garfield in Angels in America, Tom Hollander in Travesties, Jamie Parker in Harry Potter, Mark Rylance in Farinelli in The King, and Denzel. I don't even have to mention his last name. Everybody knows who Denzel is in The Iceman Cometh. Your pick?
0: It's not the most difficult category. There's a couple others that are more difficult. It's going to be Andrew Garfield. Almost... Certainly. 66%
1: of those surveyed said they picked Andrew Garfield for this.
0: Almost any of the others gave top-notch, Tony-worthy performances, but Garfield was just spectacular. Well
1: deserving of their nominations in that whole category. Leaning actress in a play, Glenda Jackson in Three Tall Women. Just you can
0: stop the list right there. (laughs) But go ahead.
1: 90% of those surveyed said Glenda Jackson would win this category.
0: I'm shocked it was that low.
1: Really? Wow. Uh, I'll mention the others just out of fairness. Uh, Condola Rashad in St. Joan, Lauren Ridloff in Children of a Lesser God, and Amy Schumer. In meteor shower, right? Steve Martin plays. Yes. So you think Glenda Jackson is a shoe in, like most people do?
0: There's absolutely no question about it. First of all, first of all, by the way, how nice for her to have something to fall back on when her 25 years in Parliament didn't really work out. In- indeed. <laughs> um, sitting sitting in the audience for that show was like taking a masterclass. It was effortless. It was putting the thought bubble over her head like. I just belong to be here. This is my milieu. It, yeah. was, it was just a joy to watch.
1: Leading actor at a musical. I think this is an interesting category this it's, year. Uh,
0: this is a hard one.
1: Harry Hayden Payton, as right. you mentioned, in My Fair Lady. Joshua Henry in Carousel. Ethan Slater in SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical. I better say the whole <laughs> thing or else I'll get letters. And Tony Shaloub in The Band's Visit.
0: Tony Shaloub was delightful and heartbreaking. I agree. And just absolutely fabulous. However, he doesn't sing in, in the play just because that character doesn't sing. So that might be uh, just a little bit of a bridge too far for some voters. He does have
1: one short song in the second act, but he almost... Doesn't it, even really sing it. It's while he, he's
0: conducting uh, on the bench there. It, it's,
1: on the bench. and it, so it's it, a little
0: bit of a recitative.
1: Very, very Henry Higgins of him. Yes. yes. So your choice here.
0: Uh, this, is, this, this was hard. Yeah, who'd you vote for? Uh, Joshua Henry.
1: In Carousel. I'm
0: in Carousel. Uh, it was a fantastic performance. Slater's a dark horse for Spongebob. It's an incredibly energetic performance all over the map but i'm with joshua henry
1: good for you uh, finally let's do leading actress in a musical uh, lauren ambrose who you talked about in my fair lady yeah. hayley kilgore in once on this island la chance in summer the donna summer musical uh, katrina lank in the band's visit taylor Louderman in mean girls and jesse mueller in carousel a, a, a jam-packed category how about this leading actress who'd you vote for
0: There was, like, to me, no choice. It was uh, Katrina Lenk in Band's Visit.
1: 65% of those surveyed said thumbs up to her.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right,
1: I'm marking yours down, and I'm going to revisit them uh, on the next episode after the Tony Awards, and we'll see how you did. Great. Something that I wanted to mention about the Tony Awards as well, and I'm going to try to do this without getting too choked up. Melody Herzfeld found out she was getting a Tony Award for teaching drama while she was teaching drama. Just days before Mother's Day, uh, Herzfeld, on the faculty at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, the scene of the mass shooting on Valentine's Day, got the call that she was going to receive the 2018 Excellence in Theater Education Tony Award.
0: Mm, that is just charming here's what
1: she said a strange number came across my cell phone while i was in class taking attendance and this voice said can you please hold for the broadway league (laughs) as if the broadway league is like the queen an an entity yes Yes, and i'm thinking okay what's this all about she said then the president of the league got on the phone and introduced himself and yada 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 tony award And my jaw just dropped. Everything ended when I heard Tony Award. I don't think I heard another word. And then it was followed up with an email, thank God, because I wouldn't have remembered anything. Hersfeld will attend the 72nd Annual Tony Awards on Sunday. That's tomorrow from the recording of this broadcast. Hersfeld's award comes with $10,000 for the theater program at Stoneman Douglas. See, I'm getting all choked up. Oh, that's great. And two tickets to the Tony's and the post show gala. And she said, Tomorrow, I guess I'll go to Nordstrom's and get a dress. <laughs> She's been teaching at Stoneman Douglas since 2003 and produced more than 50 productions at the school.
0: Oh, that's fabulous.
1: I'm hoping that in this case, they will fully have this on broadcast.
0: I would be surprised if it wasn't part of the televised uh, Tonys. I think, I think they'll do that.
1: They would be very wise to do so.
0: Among the uh, members of Actors' Equity Council who are all Tony voters, we all get swag, from the producers from most of the shows. They'll send commemorative booklets. If it's a play, they'll usually send the script if it's a Best Play nominee. If it's a Best Musical, they'll send the soundtrack or the visual, original cast yeah. recording. But uh, that swag was collected in, in our three office cities in Chicago, in uh, uh, Chicago and New York. L.A. does their own thing. And all of that swag was sent to the students in the theater department at Marjorie Stone Douglas High That's School. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. What a great story! I'm going to ask you this question, which I've asked with guests before. Uh, If you could have done anything other than make a career as a theater professional, what might you have chosen? And I know that you studied psychology in college. Uh, Would you have been a psychiatrist or a therapist of some sort, or is there some? If you could have your dream job outside of your chosen profession, what might that be?
0: At one point, I wanted to be an astronomer, you know, and, I, and that was sort of a, a, a childhood thing. But I think something in, if it was totally outside of, of the theater, something in, in science or mathematics. Really? Yeah. Astronomer is a pretty good uh, profession. When I say child, that was like, you know, seven, eight years old kind of thing. But I was, a lot of people in my, in my school thought I was going to go into math, and at the time I thought man that's got to be boring Um, (laughs) despite the fact that I was good at it now in the fullness of time there's things that would be absolutely fascinating Yeah,
1: Richard we finish our podcasts each week with a segment we call the kiss of death (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for laughing always, Yeah, Stop teasing me Because yeah. it is a celebration of the life of someone that we've just lost Or oh. lost recently Yes, And they could be famous or not famous In the entertainment industry or not And we search for people who impacted our lives in a certain way This is one that I'm going to have some trouble getting through Rachel Rockwell Oh yeah Passed away. Uh, Rachel was our guest on episode 57 on this show back in May of 2017, a little over a year ago. Uh, Rachel Rockwell, one of Chicago's prominent directors and choreographers, she was only 49 and she lost her battle with ovarian cancer. According to her father, Gary Hyde, who is also known as novelist Austin Gary, and he's mm-hmm. also a music writer. The gravity of her battle with cancer over the course of the past few years was not widely known. I will say that before our official recording of that episode, she did tell us that she had been struggling with cancer for some time, though she asked us not to really talk about that on the air, and and Mm -hmm. we, we did not. After the recording, she told us that she felt really very much better, (laughs) Um, and she had a really great time. It's a wonderful episode, uh, if you get a chance to go back and listen in our archives. Again, episode 57 from May of 2017. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of her accomplishments. Mm -hmm. She amassed a vast and grand body of work in Chicago and was best known for her critically acclaimed work on musicals, most notably The Sound of Music, Ragtime, Sweeney Todd, Les Miserables, Oliver, Disney's Aladdin, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, Mamma Mia, The Emperor's New Clothes, Shrek. She made her Goodman Theater debut with a revisionist revival of Brigadoon. And at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, she directed Ride the Cyclone which eventually moved to off-Broadway. Mm. Born Natalie Rachel Hyde, H E Y D E in Columbia, Missouri, and she grew up in Indiana, graduating from the University of Evansville. She began her stage career as a ballet dancer. Did you know that that she started I did not as a because she was a director and choreographer of pretty much all those shows that I mentioned, which is quite the feat. Her first show in Chicago was as a dancer in the Will Rogers Follies at Candlelight mm. Dinner Playhouse. Remember Candlelight Dinner of Playhouse? I saw all of my first musicals at Candlelight Dinner Playhouse about out in the suburbs uh, when I was a child. She soon made a name for herself as an actress in numerous productions, but her true passion was directing. I was always directing, always very critical. Uh, I just didn't know it, she said. Now I get I'm getting paid to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: she changed her name, this is this is fascinating, and she alluded to this on the air. She changed her name to Rockwell after her father, who is also a numerologist, told her a name change was a good idea. We were talking on the phone one day, he said, about her name change, and I, I told her to keep Rachel, which was her Well, at that point, her middle name. And then she looked out the window and saw the street sign for Rockwell. She was living on Rockwell at the time, uh, which is a well-known street here in Chicago, a small side street. I told her those names would bring her lots of success in the limelight and illumination. Hence, Rachel Rockwell was born. Uh, Rachel was a true Chicago theater success story. The possibilities were... Uh, endless for her she possessed all the qualities needed other than time I guess to realize what was definitely ahead for her. Rick Boynton, who was also a guest on our show and is the creative producer at Chicago Shakespeare Theater and a longtime friend of Rachel's, she directed there quite a lot, said, when Rachel was directing a show, everyone, actors, designers, crew, producers, felt confident and certain about the creative journey ahead. You've been in the rehearsal room and you've been involved in many productions, Richard. It's always a memorable and splendid experience when you can say that everyone, all the collaborators, were on the same side.
0: Absolutely. And it's so incredibly important because what we do, the art of theater, is the single most collaborative of the arts. There are so many moving parts. And when you get people that rally around a central figure, which the director must needs be. That's when the fabulous things happen. And honestly, that might be the single biggest theme that I have heard out in the ether, both inside and outside the theater community about Rachel in the days since she passed Have been, has been exactly that. The collaborative nature and how much everyone who worked with her to a person just had nothing but fabulous things to say about her about her work ethic, about what it did for the project.
1: Rick Boynton goes on to say that she was a magical combination of astounding talent and beautiful person. Indeed. Uh, She made actors better for having worked with her, her father said of her daughter's skill as a director. She once told me, I want to create a community of people who are there to bring each other up, not put each other down.
0: Oh, that's a great quote.
1: In addition to her father, uh, Rachel is survived by her husband, Garth Helm, who is an uh, audio specialist and sound designer here in Chicago, done some work in New York as well, and their son, Jake, her mother, Gloria Kissel-Hyde, who is an actress, and her brother, Jeremy Spencer, who is the drummer for the metal band Five Finger Death Punch, <laughs> which we spoke about on the air. Memorial service is planned for July 9th, at the local Drury Lane Theater out here in Oakbrook, Illinois. Uh, I felt that our interview with Rachel when she was on the show was one of my favorite shows. She was delightful, personable, honest, forthright, just a sweetheart. Rachel Rockwell was 49. Well, if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like my friend Richard Shavson, you can go to our website at www.booth-one and click on the donate button. It's quick. Easy and fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any contribution, of course, would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you, Richard, for being my guest today.
0: Gary, thank you so much. And I imagine that might continue a little bit off the air. I'm going to go out on a limb there. But, uh, <laughs> yes, you
1: know. we, we, we usually have a <clears throat> short libation yes. after each episode because, boy, I need it. And best of (laughs) luck in your already outstanding career. Uh, We appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Visit www.booth1.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening.